one in, and if you haven't gotten a handout, um, there's hopefully some on the stand back there. And we're going to do something a little new today. Um, we've been uh, needing some uh, more aids in Sunday school. Um, and uh, basically uh, what a Sunday school aid does is there's the teacher, Sunday school teacher, who is preparing the lesson and basically running the Sunday school for the young people. Um, but then um, the aide is there providing all kinds of help that the teacher might need. So especially with the little kids, like if um, someone needs to go to the bathroom or, um, you know, with the older kids, they're doing, say, scripture memory or catechism. You're helping to go over the stuff that they learned with them. Um, so really, this is something anybody can do. And in fact, we're really encouraging the um, teens to consider serving, too. And all you have to do um, is you just need to be a member of the church and um, if you sign up and you haven't done this protection policy training, um, we'll, we'll walk you through that. And we'll also send you a little reminder um, right before your slot begins. But basically, we've got this uh, sign-up sheet I'm going to be sending around. And um, there's a spot for um, your name, your email address. And then if you're willing to teach a class, like at the last minute, say there's uh, a need, or even not last minute, um, say there's just a in that particular time frame, a need for a teacher, you can write yes or no. It's totally fine. And it's just for each of the different age levels. And we're just asking for one month um, if you'd consider serving. So I'm just going to send this around. And um, if you've never done it before but you're curious, um, feel free to put your name down. And um, you know, if you want to ask more um, about what's involved, um, that's just fine. So um, I'll send this down over here. And you can just sort of let it work its way back through the class here. Thank you for considering that. It'll be a great help, especially to our Sunday School Administrator, uh, David Whalen, um, who helps line up all of those things. Okay, so we've been talking about the church and just want to remind you of um, where we're at in this course. Um, we're coming to the end of it. And uh, we began by talking about the big theology of the church. What, what is the church? And um, this is going way back now <laughs> a little bit, but um, what, what are some things that you remember from those early parts of our course about what is the church? What is the church? Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So... We, we hear Jesus coming, and he says, um, the kingdom of God is among you, right? And where do we see that kingdom? What's the visible representation of the kingdom? It is the church. So we are a kingdom of priests, it says. Um, it uses this language of kingdom for the people of God. Excellent. What else can we say about what is the church? In terms of really fundamental core things, I'm, I'm not fishing for one thing here. <laughs> There were lots of things we said at the beginning of this class. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so those marks of the church. Um, what, how do you know when you're looking at the church? Um, and we talked about faithful preaching of the word, faithful administration of the sacraments, and faithful discipline. That's really helpful right? Because there's a lot of confusion in the church today about, you know, uh, when a bunch of believers get together and have, say, like a, a Bible study. Is that, is that the church? 
And we could certainly say that's an expression of the love of Christ and that, you know, those individual believers are part of the church, right? Um, but we want, wouldn't want to call that entity a church because it doesn't have all the marks, right? Um, there's no, like, formal membership. There's, there's no um, uh, giving of the signs and seals of the kingdom, right? Uh, the sacraments that God has appointed, um, yeah, and one other thing I'll just remind you of is just a um, super core um, idea, but um, the church is those people who are in union with Christ. So remember, union with Christ, oneness with Jesus, is fundamental to what the church is. Remember that image of head and body? Um, we are all organically one with each other. We're all part of the same body, but we're also one with Jesus, our head. Right? And so we derive all of our identity and all of our strength and all of our um, you know, trajectory, our mission from Jesus. What's the mission of the church? Well, first you have to ask, what's the mission of Jesus? And then you can understand the mission of the church. Right? Uh, what's the power that we have right now to do what we do? Well, what's the, th the power Jesus has? What's the authority he has? And then we can start to understand the authority given to the church. And that's really what we're talking about today. We're beginning to, you know, well, we've been going through some of these very practical issues of the church, talking about membership and things like that. Last time we talked about the structure of church government. Now we're going to talk about another facet of church government, which is power. Church power. What does this mean? And the first point there on your uh, handout is the nature of church power. And just the very first thing we need to say is what I just was saying. You want to understand church power? You need to understand Jesus' power. And we know about Jesus that all authority is in him, in heaven and on earth. And that's pretty amazing, right, when you think about it. All authority, not just in the physical realm. So we're talking about the authority over, you know, the, 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 the universe, the solar system, the, 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 the physical elements of our world. When Jesus says to the waters and the waves, you know, be still, right? That's an exercise of awesome authority, right? Um, but then in the spiritual realms as well, um, he has all authority over all the angels um, and hidden authorities and powers that we don't see. And of course, human spheres as well, right? He has authority over every single government in this world, every political government. He has authority over every family. He has authority over every church, okay? And so the church only has authority because God has given it to us because Jesus has given it to us. And so when we talk about power, it's important that we say that we're, we're talking about that idea of authority. Um, when you hear the word power, you might hear Darth Vader saying, you don't know the power of the dark side, right? And it's sort of like this creepy word, right? <laughs> it can mean like power, like, you know, influence and even oppressive influence, right? Uh, not what I'm talking about today. Um, what am I talking about when I say power? Well, Stuart Robertson has a great book on, on the, the doctrine of the church, and he says when the, when the scriptures talk about church power, it's talking about two things. One is, what are we authorized to do? What is the authority that the church has? And then secondly, what are we empowered to do? Which is, I hope you see, going to be, those two things are going to relate to each other, right? Like, what has Jesus given us authority to do? 
he will likewise give us the power to be able to do, right? He says, all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth. And then he says, go make disciples. So he's giving us a mission. He's giving us an authority to do something. And then how does he close it out? He says, I'm with you, right? So I'm giving you this huge mission, make disciples. And we're like, whoa, this is going to be hard work. We're going to, we got a lot we got to do here. How are we going to do this? Well, not by might, but by my spirit says the Lord, right? Um, what, what the church is empowered to do. So let's think some more about the nature of church power, because I don't think this is something we often think of, right? Um, we're used to talking, we have all kinds of debates about, like, the authority of the state, right? <laughs> this is a big contentious issue in our culture, right? Um, what is the state authorized to do or not to do, right? There's all kinds of fur about this, right? We don't usually think of the church as an authoritative institution. We think of the church, I think most modern evangelicals think of the church as like this place where you go and you get encouraged, gives you a boost, and, and off you go into your week, right? We don't usually think of it as an institution that has authority, that has some teeth to it, right? So what's the nature of our authority in the church? Two key words. All church power is ministerial and declarative. And this is like old Reformation words. Okay, so these are, these are words that um, I'm summarizing a lot, of, a lot of reform teaching when I use these two words. So what do these words even mean? Well, first is ministerial. What do we mean by that? It means that we administer the kingdom and the laws that Jesus has given us. So think about in our country, right? There are the different branches of the government. And one of those branches is the legislative branch, right? So Congress making these laws. And then there are people who then execute those laws, who then need to do what the country has established as, as the law. Well, in the, in the realm of the church, there is one lawmaker. And it is by fiat. It is not... It is not a, a deliberative assembly. <laughs> it is King Jesus. He makes the laws. He's the one who decrees what is to be done, both for worship, for Christian life, for anything. Um, and so what is the role then of church leaders? What's the role of the pastor and the elders? What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to administer what Jesus has given us to do. We don't make the rules. We don't make the laws. And in fact, that's one of the signs of a very, like, very dangerous church to be in is when you're in a church where the elders or pastors are propagating rules that are not in the Scripture. And so you have, you know, churches that will say, look, there's only one way of schooling your kids, and it's this way, right? And, of course, the Scriptures speak about how we should school our kids. So we should say all those things, Right? Um, teach, you know, raising up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, teach your children the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, when you lie down, when you rise up, right? We want to say all those things, but we don't want to go beyond what is written, right? So it is not the place of the church to make up the rules. Instead, we administer the rules that Jesus, who is the sole lawmaker, has established. And uh, we'll talk in a moment about where we get this from Scripture. But before we, we talk more about 
um, where we get this or why, why we believe this is the nature of church power, we need to contrast it with the opposite word, which is magisterial. So ministerial is the opposite of magisterial. Magisterial authority is authority um, that makes rules, that adds to the body of doctrine and um, law that God has given his church. So a church that believes in the magisterial authority of the church believes that the church ought to be able to add authoritative statements to the body of truth that's already been received by the church in Holy Scripture. So an example of this, in this, the Roman Catholic Church believes that the church has magisterial authority. And so in 1956, Pope Paul VI issued Humani Vitae, which stated that it was immoral to engage in any artificial forms of birth control. So this was an authoritative statement by the church that said, if you do this, you are sinning. You are disobeying God. Right? And there are plenty of other examples of this in the history of Catholicism. Authoritative, authoritative teaching about transubstantiation. In other words, that um, the, the, the sacraments um, actually get transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. Um, if you don't believe this, you are in sin. Or purgatory. And I'm just giving you the dates there when they made these statements. Or the immaculate, that is, the sinless conception of Mary. So that it's not just that, you know, we, we all believe that Jesus was immaculately conceived. He was conceived without sin. He didn't have any original sin, right? But they were saying, well, also Mary was conceived in this way, right? All of these are things the Bible itself does not teach, and yet they claim that's okay. Um, we can still say what we're saying because... Jesus has given us the authority to add these additional clarifications and teachings, right? Well, the church can only claim that if Jesus has actually given that authority, right? And so rather than um, this, uh, this magisterial form, we, when we come to the scriptures, what do we see? We see Jude 3 saying that the faith, that is the body of teaching about what we're to live, to believe, is once for all delivered to the saints. There's this deposit of revelation that is given, which is the New Testament, and of course the old before it, to which nothing is to be added. So Deuteronomy 4, um, even the, the end of Revelation, I think Revelation 22.18 is talking about the, you know, the uh, uh, particularly the book of Revelation, but even if it is just the book of Revelation, the principle is still there that when God speaks, we don't add stuff. I warn everyone who hears the words of this, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And Deuteronomy 4 is saying the same thing there. Um, it's a principle of God's revelation that we can't take anything from it. In other words, we can't cherry pick and say, I like these scriptures, but not these. We'll kind of, you know, not talk about this. And same thing with we can't add stuff, right? So what's this saying? Unless Jesus has given us the authority, unless he has given us the right to speak authoritatively on his behalf um, and to add these additional things, we can't do that. So we are, as ministers, 
of the Word of God. We are simply sharing with you what King Jesus has already given to us. We don't get to make the rules for worship, for Christian living, for church life. We are simply enacting the rules in the Bible. So any, any questions on this? Is this making sense, the idea of ministerial authority? Yeah, Josh. It's okay. Hmm. Right. Yeah, great. Great, yeah. So the question is, um, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says um, to hold fast to the tradition that you have received, whether by letter or by word of mouth. Um, are there traditions that exist outside of the Scripture to, to which, you know, they've been passed on that we should be bound to? Am I getting your question? Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And, of course, that's part of the Roman Catholic view is that there are sort of two streams of revelation. There's Scripture and then there's sacred tradition, right? And there's this, what, what do they think that they're doing when they're, you know, laying these things out? They're just saying, well, we're just putting in print what has been passed on, um, whether that's historically tenable or not uh, is another matter. But, um, you know, part of what this is getting at is the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture, um, and so you have 1 Corinthians 4 talking about not going beyond what is written. Um, and this idea that um, Ephesians 2, that the, the apostles and prophets are these special offices. We'll talk about this hopefully next week. There are these special, prof- special offices which are for giving the deposit of revelation that's once for all for the saints. So you don't lay foundation and then keep on laying foundations. You lay the foundation, and then what happens? You build on top of that something different. Um, and so, you know, part of what this is pointing us towards is that, that the, the, there is a period when God was giving his revelation to his people. Um, and that, that revelation has been given to us in Scripture. Um, and, and, uh, and so we don't, we don't look for, like, extra-biblical um, stream of, of revelation, yeah. Right, that's right, yeah, First Thessalonians. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great, great point. That First Thessalonians is probably one of the first letters Paul wrote, if not the first one, at least that's preserved for us in Scripture. Um, he's saying, you know, pay attention not just to what's been written, but also to the authoritative stream of tradition that's being given through the apostles, and that um, is part of how they're getting revelation at that period. Um, it's not like this, the, the New Testament suddenly appeared and was like being circulated in its full form, right? Um, and then what happens by the end of Paul's ministry, well, Second uh, Timothy, and um, I think it's also First Timothy too, where he talks about the, you know, these final letters. He's saying, dedicate yourself to the public reading of the scriptures, right? <laughs> and so the idea being that now, as the canon is coming to a close, um, we're attending to the scriptures, not to um, some side stream of tradition. Yeah, Paul? 
Yeah, that's right. There's lots of these warnings, like in Colossians 2, and even uh, Jesus, you know, talking about um, regarding as um, authoritative the traditions of men over against what God has given us in the scripture. Yeah, that's a key thing. Um, Paying attention to what God tells us to pay attention to and where he locates authority. Yeah, Berga. Right. Right. Yeah, so the question is, what about churches that practice speaking in tongues and these other kind of ongoing charismatic gifts? Um, you're exactly right to, to realize, like, if what I'm saying is true, then that is out of bounds. That's not something we ought to be doing in this present time. And um, I hope to give a more thorough explanation of that next week when we talk about different kinds of church office. But that's exactly right. Um, we are to attend to the scriptures. Um, that's where God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, and then how do we enact these rules? Well, how does the state enact their rules? They, they have certain means, um, different consequences if you break the rules. Uh, maybe financial, you get fined. Or it could be some other kind of punishment, right? Uh, being, being put in jail. Um, they have physical means for um, enacting what they require. What is the way in which we enact what is required? Well, we, we speak what God has given us to speak. We declare all that God has given to us, and our words are what are the means we use for um, bringing about the kingdom and um, enforcing the kingdom. We do not enforce in any other way. It talks about in Romans 13:4 that the sword is entrusted to the state. What do we do when we've um, enacted church discipline? We go through the whole process that God gives us in his word, which we already talked about before, and we come to the conclusion that, okay, here's this very clear teaching of scripture. Here's this person saying they're a brother or sister in Christ, but refusing to repent. We go through the whole thing of trying to encourage them, encouraging them to change and to repent. They don't. And then we make the statement, this person is no longer to be recognized as part of the church. There's the excommunication statement, authoritative statement. Well, what happens then when that person comes forward, even though I am saying every single Sunday, you know, if you're a member in good standing, right, of a Bible-believing church, what happens when somebody comes forward who's not a member? Somebody who comes forward who is not in good standing, they've been excommunicated, are we going to have the security team run and tackle them and physically keep them from the table? No, we've, we've fenced the table verbally. We've spoken the words and said, do not come if this is the case for you. And at that point, that's what we've done. That's, that's, what, that's, what the, uh, that's what the scriptures are calling us to do. We don't have the authority to wield the sword because Jesus didn't give the sword to the state. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, again, this would be where we'd say, you know, friend, you're not to have this. You can't, you can't receive this. But again, if, if uh, you know, 
if there's, it, it's kind of thing where like, if they're just gonna come, come up and take it, like we're not gonna, again, physically prevent um, that kind of thing. Um, we're not gonna hand it to them, knowing that's the circumstance, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you know, if we're not certain about um, someone standing, maybe a, a, somebody who's starting to become a frequent visitor, but we don't know whether they're members. You know, talking with them is an important part of that that act. Okay, so all church power is ministerial and declarative. That's how we're seeking to wield the authority that Jesus has given to us. Um, and so what then are the things that are entrusted to us? What are the specific powers that are ministerial and declarative? What are we authorized to do? And here's an incomplete list, but one of them, very top of it, is binding the conscience of believers based on Scripture. So Titus 2.15, Paul says to, Tim, to, to Titus, Declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority. Think about that. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So there's, there's a very authoritative statement, right? <laughs> He's saying, when you preach, when you declare, declare it with authority. So what does that mean for a minister? It means when I'm up there, I'm not going to say, well, I feel like you ought to do this, or I think this, or personally, this is my opinion. And same thing now, like when I'm teaching you now. I mean, if I'm not certain about something, I'll tell you. Or if, I, if there's like a, a part of scripture where I'm like, well, it could mean this, could mean this, not sure. Okay, I'm not going to say everything with the same level of um, absolute certainty when I'm not actually certain. But for the most part, what are we doing up here? We're declaring in God's authority, what God has said based on his word. And it's so important to say that as I'm saying to you, you must, on the authority of God himself, you must believe this. And I'm saying to you, you must do this if you're going to count yourself faithful to Jesus. That it's not because I have some kind of special insight or some kind of, this is in no way derived from me. It's simply what Jesus has spoken in his word and the authority that then he's transmitted to his church. It's crazy to think of it, that human beings could actually declare things on the authority of God. On what basis, if not that God himself has spoken in a way that's understandable to human beings. So we must believe what God has spoken. We must do what God has spoken in his word and he's given the church the authority. Another passage I could have cited here is uh, 1 Timothy, where he says, uh, chapter 2, um, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So you picture, like, you know, the truth being upheld by this strong pillar. What is the strong pillar that's upholding the truth? It's the church. The church is the one that Jesus has appointed to speak truth. And I wonder if we've internalized this sufficiently, um, right? It's, 
it's not necessarily the individual Christian, right? Um, the individual Christian is able to understand God's word, and an individual Christian has the spirit of God and says we are all God taught, right? But there are the particular people that Jesus has appointed for the equipping of the saints, Ephesians 4, which are his officers. And so we should expect that when the word is being given to us, that what we're hearing is, in fact, Jesus himself speaking to us. And that's part of why we're so jealous to guard those offices. Um, we have to be really careful with who goes into the office of minister of the word. Okay. What else are we empowered to do or authorized to do? Wielding the keys of the kingdom. Let me just read some of these to you. Because the authority in these statements, I hope, kind of blows you away. So Matthew 16, 19. Jesus says to Peter and the apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So think about that. Authority of the Father, sending the Son. The Son then turns and sends us. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And I think there's you know, two ways of understanding this. One way is saying that the church kind of has this um, ability to basically determine someone's eternal state, right, by by de declaration. I think that um, a better way of taking this, and, in, and even the, um, the way that the, the word is phrased there in Greek, it's, it will have been withheld. It, it is something that, that what, when we declare something on the authority of God's promises, we have every right to believe that what God has appointed in his word is true, right? So if someone is believing in Christ, they have a, prof a credible profession of faith, then what does the promise of God say about that person? Anybody? They have eternal life. They are forgiven, right? And so when the church then turns to those people who have a credible profession of faith and say, your sins are forgiven. This happens every worship service, right? It actually happens not just when the pastor says your sins are forgiven, but also when you receive the sacraments that's sealing to you your forgiveness, it's an authoritative like, sign that the church is saying, you are forgiven. And what we're, what we're supposed to take from that is that is an authoritative wielding of the keys of the kingdom. Like that Jesus' own authority is being, being shown forth through the church. Now, does the church wield those keys perfectly? Of course, we know there's many times where the church errs. Right? And it's sometimes corrupted leadership and stuff. Um, and yet at the same time, it doesn't undermine, those abuses don't undermine that there's a real authority that's given to the church. That's what we talked about in the membership class a little while ago. So um, this also applies to um, determining that a church council, like a session or presbytery, has committed an error and needs to change their decision. Remember last week when we were talking about there's authority that the higher courts of the church have over the lower courts. And so that when, you know, Acts 15, 
they say, here's what all the churches need to do under us, including those that were forbidding um, Gentiles to join unless they were circumcised. They now need to permit those Gentiles to join even if they're not circumcised. They need to change their practice, an authoritative word. That's also wielding of the keys of the kingdom, and it's an authority of the king. Any questions on this, this wielding of the keys of the kingdom? I know this is it's a little counterintuitive, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, great. Yeah, so like uh, there's an act of discipline by the, by the king where he says to these churches, including some of the very like troubled churches that are going astray into apostasy, you must repent or your lampstand will be removed, right? Um, and so there's this judgment of the king. Um, and I think on the one hand, we could say that like that authority of Jesus is something that maybe we won't see clearly until the, the coming of our Savior. And he clarifies once and for all as the judge and the final judge, this was a true church, this was not, right? Um, but even now we can start to see this when, um, you know, churches devolve into heresy. And a little bit later on here, I think it's on the back um, yeah, determining heresy, what is outside the realm of sound doctrine, or just above that, recognizing congregations or denominations as churches, so that when true Bible-believing churches come together and say, um, for example, in the fourth century, that Arianism, this idea that Jesus is basically just an exalted creature, he's not actually God, and they say Arianism is a damnable heresy. It's, it's, it's so dangerously false that if you believe Arianism, you, you can't be saved, right? That would be an example of the lampstand of those churches that embrace that being taken away in a public way, saying you can't claim anymore um, to be a true church while you teach that heresy, right? Um, so we can even see that prior to Jesus coming. Good few more things that Jesus has given to us, enacting the Great Commission, organizing for worship, discipleship, and evangelism. The call to worship is an authoritative summons. And this is really important to say. Um, you know, I've just been saying we have this ministerial authority. We can't make up rules. Well, what about the, what about the fact that worship is going to be at 11 a.m. today? That's nowhere in Scripture. Are we doing a magisterial act there? <laughs> and this is where uh, in order to carry out the things that clearly are specified in the word, things like preach the word, okay, great. Well, which one should we do today? Like, it's just not given. There's no lectionary, uh, you know, inspired lectionary in the Bible. Um, you should read this on the first week of December, right? Um, it's not there. So part of what we do is you're authorized to call worship it's part of the Great Commission. How will you go about doing that? Well, there's some liberty there. And in some contexts, maybe it makes sense to worship at 9 p.m. under the cover of darkness in the secrecy of a believer's home because of persecution. And then in other contexts, praise God, like ours, where we can just meet openly, 
people are going to have worship at 11 a.m., Jesus leaves it up to the officers of his church to make those specific rules. So like, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about um, rules for kids in the congregation, right? Did we have the authority to make those rules? I I think in the, the basic sense of, you know, let everything be done decently and in order, right? First Corinthians that here's some specific ways we're trying to do things decently and in order in the life of the body, right? Um, That's a different thing categorically from, um, we think that it would be really nice um, to do skit time in the midst of worship. Um, We think that makes sense to us, and now we're going to authoritatively tell you that you need to show up, not for the public reading and preaching of the word, but skit time, now I think we've crossed the line and we're no longer being ministerial but magisterial in how we wield our authority. So enacting the Great Commission is an authority that's given to the church, um, to the leaders of our church. And then, of course, ordaining men to special office or revoking that ordination, those are both authoritative acts, and I already mentioned the other two bullet points. So do you, when you read this list of the authorities the, the, the specific kinds of things we're authorized to do um, that, that the church is given. Do you think of these things as authoritative? Does it make sense to you why I'm emphasizing that this is an, these are authoritative acts? Um, things that we do on the authority of Jesus the King. How does it enhance your understanding of those things? To think of those things as acts of Jesus the King. Good, yeah, it's scriptural, so it's not legalism. So this is not us um, grabbing authority that isn't actually given, right? Um, This is something where we're just looking at the Bible and saying, what has he said? Good. Yeah, I hope, too, that it, it helps us to see that, like, we are obligated. We must do these things. Um someone is ordained, we must honor them with the authority, you know, the dignity and the, um, the, the, the love and the respect that that office entitles them to. And when they are revoked for ordination, we must no longer call them pastor or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so let's say a church stops wielding the authority on these things. I mean, that would be, especially, remember the marks of the kingdom, um, you know, authoritative preaching of the word, wielding of the sacraments, church discipline. All those things have to do with authority, right? And so if a church no longer is saying, well, we're not going to discipline people anymore, that's a sign that, like, they've ceased to function as a church, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, great point. So, like, in our time, the parachurch is huge, right? And sometimes the parachurch is really genuinely helpful doing things that really has not been directly given to the visible church. Remember the difference between church as organism 
and church as organization. We're talking now about church as organization. Um, what is under the auspices of the, the ministers and elders of the church, right? Um, some parachurch ministries are doing good stuff, um, like, you know, I think of these health sharing ministries, right, that are helping believers organize to care for each other and their health needs, right? But there are other church, parachurch ministries where they're doing really the work of the church. They're um, evangelizing and um, discipling people in a way that sometimes keeps them from the visible church, right? And like seeks to replace the visible church. Um, that's a problem on the part of the ministry. It's also a problem on the part of the church for abdicating those things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the limits of church power and its relationships to other spheres of authority. So, um, after all, this is America, right? Checks and balances. Um, and there's something good about realizing that no human authority is absolute, that there are these different realms. That's a biblical concept. There are certain things that are not entrusted to the church. The realm of the home is not entrusted to the visible church. So education, nourishment, discipline of children, what you do with your personal finances, your personal time, your personal space, that's not something where the, you know, the pastors and elders can come and say to you, hey, you now need to quit that job and you need to work this job, right? And unfortunately, there are some cultish-type churches that will actually say, you can't change your job unless you first talk to your pastor. And he's in charge of all that. Uh, okay, well, I mean, there's certain things that the church is authorized to say to you, like there are certain unbiblical lines of work, right, that we can say, on the authority of Jesus, you must not do that. Um, and even something as personal as whom shall you marry, the church has something to say to that. You know, you should not join light and darkness. In other words, on the authority of Jesus, we can say you must not marry this unbeliever. Right? But beyond those explicit teachings, um, and obviously there's things about the discipline of children and the, how we do our personal finances that are given in the word, but there's tons of things that are not. And we need to realize that the authority to make those decisions does not reside in the church, but in families. And similarly in the civil realm, um, which I'm defining as having to do with justice, order, and peace in our society. The authority to make war. The authority to punish evildoers physically and economically. The authority to tax. These are things that are explicitly given in different texts of scripture to the state. So the church has no business doing those things. We ought not to overstep our bounds. And I really like how Kuiper, uh, this is just Kuiper's sphere sovereignty teaching. I really like how he brings this out, that the, no sphere owes its existence to the others. Each is ultimately accountable to Jesus. And I drew this little diagram for you to show that. Um, each of those are directly accountable to the king. And yet, there are times where each of those authorities need to interact with each other. So when a parent abuses a child, the church and the state have a right and an authority to intervene. Or when the state commits grave iniquity like abortion, the church has authority to denounce that and to speak openly against that. Um, and of course, there's lots of complexity in how you see those spheres inter interacting. But the big idea is the church is one sphere among several. And so we need to be careful not to overstep our bounds and to recognize and honor the authority that's given to those other spheres 
Um, it's part of how um, the church operates in a healthy way. Um, when we let Jesus be the king over everything um, and let him delimit and give authority as, as his word says. So any, any questions on this? This is a very, very brief form of sphere sovereignty, but yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. If I understand your question, I hear you saying that the word clearly speaks into these spheres, things that families ought to do, things that states ought to do. Um, ought not the church to declare all of those things? And isn't that an authoritative speaking into those other spheres on the part of the church? Um, and so is there a sense in which I'm not um, representing it right to kind of di divide these spheres apart? Um, that that they ought, we ought to be able to speak into those other spheres. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say, um, you know, under things not entrusted to the church. I said, you know, that Jesus entrusts these things to the families, but then it's not on the handout. I, I can see why you, you might not have, um, maybe it wasn't as balanced as what I wrote on the handout. But, like, we want, we want to say everything the word says about education, nourishment, discipline of children, personal finances, how we order our personal time and space. Like, the word has a lot to say about those things, and the church must declare all those things to the family. Well, what is not entrusted to the church is the authority to, um, you know, figure out all of the details that aren't specifically given in the word. Um, so, like, we can't, can't discipline or, like, say um, a, a family's at fault for certain choices that we might consider unwise financially um, unless there's explicit warrant in the word um, I don't I don't know if I'm I, I don't <laughs> I must be not saying this right yeah go ahead yeah Allow those spheres to, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, there, there are other possible models here that are different from the diagram that I, I've done. Like, so you have like a, there, there have been, in the history of the church, there have been times where the church has put itself over all these things and over the state, over the family, and you'll have popes or bishops crowning kings and um, and in taking to itself um, things that simply haven't been entrusted 
to the church. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to get at. They, these, these realms interact with each other. And like you're saying, Paul, we really do need to, both Pauls, we, both, we really need to say um, what the scripture says about each of these realms or we're failing in our duty. Like one of the reasons why God gave the church and gave the word is so that we could then teach all of you who are family people and all of you people who are in the state, which is all of us, right, in one form or another. We're all citizens. We're all children or fathers or brothers or whatever. Um, we want to know how to live and honor Jesus in those spheres. Who's going to teach us? Who is given the authority to instruct? The church, right? But God hasn't given to the church all the authority to make all the detailed decisions um, that really are up to human wisdom in light of the word. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, well, uh, yeah, Mike. And that's an example, right, of, of going beyond what's written, right? Um, yeah. Well, um, here's kind of the final, I guess, kind of application question. How should we treat something that our elders ask us to do? Answer. Just like with civil government and with parents, if it's in their authority, then we have to submit, even if we personally disagree, as long as it doesn't involve disobedience to Jesus. This is what it means to submit in the Lord. So we never disobey the king, right? If his under rulers tell us to sin, we never go against the, the, the great king, Jesus, to obey the under king. And, and yet there is real authority. So it belongs to synods and councils. I, lo I love this, and it's a very powerful and well-worded statement. It belongs to synods and councils. In other words, sessions and presbyteries and... Um, General Assembly, ministerially, there's that word, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God, things like, please gather at 11 a.m., and government of his church, to receive complaints in cases of maladministration, in other words, um, this church did wrong in disciplining me, and authoritatively to determine the same. In other words, that, that person... Um, ought to be restored because they were unjustly treated by their session. Which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made, as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. Translation. If the if the the authorities that God has put over us in the church make a decision about, you know, this person ought to be restored to the fellowship of the saints. Their, their church discipline trial was unjustly conducted, and therefore uh, Presbytery says, 
reversing the decision of this local church, this person now needs to be regarded as a brother and sister again, and that, that session did the wrong thing. We then need to honor that and submit to that, even if personally we disagree. I think that's a, that's a kind of a mind-stretching idea for us, <laughs> that we're not, we're not terribly good. Uh, this does not come naturally to us in our individualism and in the way in which um, we've been taught to think about ourselves as kind of like these individual little islands, me and Jesus with my Bible, and that's the final say in everything. We're not taught to think normally about um, the fact that the church can make these decisions that we're bound to honor. Yeah. That's right. That's right, yeah. When, when do we know a kid is really honoring their parents? It's when they're given an, a command that they don't like and don't want to do, and they do it anyway, right? It's not just when they happen, you know, the, the will of the parent and the will of the child aligns, and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, because I agree, right? Um, you know, at Presbytery once, there was um, a, an exam for theology, and the minister, a candidate minister, was um, sustained, but only by one vote. So it, was three, it has to be a three-quarters majority, and almost a three-quarters voted against this person. So the, the person was sustained in their exam. That means that they were found to be a faithful person to preach the gospel, even though there were a good number of people who didn't think so. Then the question came, shall we ordain this person? The vote was unanimous. Why? There were all those people who thought that guy, he has serious theological problems. So serious he ought not to be a minister, and yet when it came to the vote, shall we ordain, they voted unanimously. Why? They were submitting. They were submitting to the brothers who voted yes. You understand that? That's a really powerful thing. And it's not disintegrous. It's actually integrous to the fact that Jesus has authority. He's given his authority to his people. I wish I had more time. There's some things on there about, you know, what does this mean in, in the life of the church and how we ought to honor the authority of those around us. I encourage you to read that. Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you, and we are in awe that the church has been given authority. And we pray that we would honor that authority, that there would be mutual submission among us, that um, as elders and pastors, that we would not wield this authority wrongly or go beyond what authority has been given to us. And we pray that um, we would all honor those authorities over us and be humble. And even when we disagree, that we wouldn't um, gripe or complain, but that, Lord, we'd know that you are seeing fit to rule your church through fallible people, and therefore we can trust you that if you put these people over us that you can, you can um, lead us in, in the good way even when sometimes those people don't fully understand or maybe make the wrong call. We're thankful, Father, that we can trust you to overrule even fallible human decisions. And we're thankful that you're leading us even now through your church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. All right, thanks everybody.